0: In Luke chapter 2, we're going to tell that narrative once again and glean from it another aspect of miracle. So, Luke 2 8 through 14. We have uh, called this Advent season miracle for the obvious that when God arrives, He brings with Him many, many experiences, many miracles to us. We've looked at the miracle of joy that God replaces our sadness, our experience, and suffering in the world with his joy. We've taken a look at peace, peace with God, right? Peace of God, and then the way God, in his presence in our life, creates peace and restoration between us and everybody else. So this week, we're going to start with another aspect, and I I don't want to overplay this, but I do think it's the greatest miracle of all in this particular season, and that is that the presence of God showed up in Jesus' birth. God came. We just sang those things. I just listened to Paul uh in the back, set up communion. I said, "Well, thanks a lot for stealing my thunder because that's basically the the sermon but uh so if you paid attention to communion, you can quietly leave now. Um, the miracle of Jesus coming, the glory of God showed up in christmas um so before we get into it i I would like to stop and just ask for the holy spirit to uh to show up and teach us i mean we're most of us if I see and recognize you uh you probably know what I'm about to say about the glory of God coming. But I know the Holy Spirit loves to interrupt what we assume we know and what we're anchoring our dreams and hopes in and try to get us back to a gospel end. So let's stop and ask for his presence and his teaching in this moment. God, thank you so much for um, Jesus, our Savior. Thank you so much for this season that it reminds us of the joy, the peace, and the presence of God that came in Christ. And so I pray that today, even though we might, some of us hear things that we're familiar with, I pray that your your spirit really connects it to a need we have today, a reminder that we need today and a hope that we need today. God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, someone once said that uh, there are three categories to knowledge. Um, or of knowledge, one would be the things you know you know, like expertise, types of things. The other would be the things you know you don't know, like that would be um, almost everything in me and a computer. Um, or this one, the things you know, you uh, things you don't know you don't know. Uh, this is my conversation with everybody that's 25 years and younger. When I look at them and they've got all these ideas, I go, you don't know what you don't know. Okay, you need about three more decades and then we'll, we'll talk about what you think you know. Um, when it comes to the glory of God, I really believe most of us operate at this third category. We don't know what we don't know about who God is or the glory of God particularly, okay? Um, for instance, if I were just say, tell me about the glory of God, most of us would really struggle with this abstract thought. It would be really foreign to us. And so here we are at this season of Christmas and glory, this word shows up everywhere. In songs that we sing, glory to God in the highest, you just sang in a song. And this, this idea comes up. And so if you look at this season of our life, this one that is kind of defined by chaos, to be fair, um, how, does it, how does it all fit together? Because Christmas has taken on somewhat of a, a life of its own. One writer said it this way, we have successfully manufactured an event that clearly demonstrates the postmodern phenomenon of creating one's own meeting. Let me paraphrase so you know what he's talking about. In in other words, our culture has created the biggest holiday the world over that focuses everyone's attention on everything but the point of the season. Does that feel like it? Um, It's kind of how it is. So regarding this particular aspect, of the glory of God. I think we need some perspective this morning. If if I'm gonna to suggest to you today that the greatest miracle of Christmas is that God came close, then we better understand that and understand what it means and what it provides for us as sinners. So we're back in that narrative of Luke 2, 8 through 14. I just wanna read it because there's word after word, thought after thought of what God provides, the miracles of God in the coming of Jesus. So see if you spot the glory that he provides here or his presence And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom, with whom he is pleased. I, I want to focus on the idea of glory there as presented by the angels in the announcement of the coming of Jesus. The word glory in the original language, actually in Hebrew, is the word kabod. It simply means weighty. It's heavy. It's essence. It is uh, esteem and abundance. It means majesty. It is like just saying, it's like a 60s term, God is heavy, all right? Um, he's, just, he's just heavy. There's a, I like to put it another way. There's a crisis to God. Like you can't just be indifferent to God. If he's God at all, if he gets to define himself at all, he suddenly crowds me. He forces me to see a perspective outside of myself. There's an issue I have if there is God right? There's a crisis, and he has an answer to that crisis. So how do you get your head around God coming in the flesh? How do you get your head around the glory of God arriving at Christmas? How do you understand that? How do you understand what God is like? You know, we make fun of this every time a preacher asks you a question, and Paul says, are Paul not the apostle? When he says, "You know, if you jump in and just say, Jesus, you're probably mostly right, well, this is the answer, church. How do you get your head around the glory of God? How do you understand his coming? Very good, very good. We'll try this again later and see how it works out. Jesus, the glory of God is made known in Jesus. Now, I've done student ministry for years and years and years. I go back so far, we invented all the corny things student ministries have ever done. There was a game we used to play with the students back in the 80s. I don't even know what it was called, but we would line them all up right, 20, 30 deep, and I would show a picture to the first kid, last kid in line, and he would take that picture, and he would take his finger, and he would draw that picture on the back of the person in front of him, and that person, based on how he feels, would then, in turn, draw the picture he felt on his back on the person in front of him, and on and on it would go, 30 people, till the last person had a piece of paper, and he would draw what he felt on his back after 30 interpretations. So you got nothing like the picture, okay, nothing at all. That's what it's like, for I said, tell me about God. I heard, I thought, I felt. Someone once told me, and eventually we're drawing pictures that are nothing like the sovereign Lord of glory. So church, how do you really know what the glory of God is like? How do you know what the presence of God is like? How do you know what it's like for him to become man and come to this world? The answer? Jesus is the answer. Here's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. This is Hebrews 1, 3, and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the glory of God come, and he is just like him, the exact imprint. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, referring to Jesus, he has made God known. That's how we know him. That, John says, is how Jesus makes God known. The word or the phrase makes God known is actually one word in the original language. In the Greek, it is exeomai, and it just simply means making something known by detailed explanation. We get the word exegete from it, which you've probably heard. It's what preachers do when they exegete a passage. They explain a, a particular portion of scripture. So get this. Here's what John says Jesus does. Jesus exegetes God. He preaches God by his presence. He comes to this world and says, here's what I'm like. In all of its form and fashion, he reveals him to us. He makes, Jesus makes God clear. In other words, if you want to see the glory of God, you don't have to look very far. Just look to Jesus. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is the true God. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus is the very nature God. Okay, so how do we get our head around this idea of his coming? Well, the glory of God is made known in Jesus. Let me show you another thing that's true. The glory of God came close in Jesus. It wasn't just like it's on a billboard. You can read about it. You can hear about it. You can know about it from a distance. Our God, this glory, came close to us, which is an amazing part. Now, this, this whole understanding of the glory of God will get exponentially better and more mind-blowing as we go through it. But the fact that the glory of God came close just escalates it even more one of the most amazing realities in our world is this that the infinite holy awesome transcendent all powerful creating and sustaining god of all that we see that he would move close to his creation that just i just don't know have a file for that right he came close if if god would have decided to keep his distance, I would totally understand. Of course, of course, you're, you're different than I, and I'm a sinner. You, you should keep your distance, right? But look what God did. You don't have to turn there, but in John chapter one, John begins his narrative, his gospel, with really life-changing truth. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? Was, was God. Skip down to verse 14, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right there, you contain the most hard-to-get-in-your-head thought in the world. God became man. He took on flesh and became like one of us, a, a real person. How unbelievable is that truth? The creator, get this, subjected himself to those things he made. He put time in place. He put the sun in the, in the sky and stars to rule the night. He made it rain. He made crops grow. And he said, I'm going to go there and submit myself to those things that I made and those things that I hold together. All the physical laws that are in play, I'm going to go submit myself to it. All the ups and downs in your life, all the struggles and unknowns. I'm going there. I'm going to that particular world. He came and he learned a language and he grew in knowledge just like every person. He had to be taught things. He had to go through growing pains, I'm certain. And when he was sitting with his dad in the carpentry shop, I'm certain he cut the wrong length of wood once or twice. I'm certain he skinned his knuckles, right? I'm certain that happened. He did it as a real human. Although sinless, although perfect, he still experienced those things. He really did it. The glory of God came close in Jesus. The word became flesh. God became man and dwelt among us. So you get this layout so far. The glory of God is revealed in Jesus. The glory of God comes close in Jesus. Let me give you the next kind of mind-blowing aspect, okay? The glory of God got in our mess in Jesus. It's not just like he came and submitted himself to the structure of the world and the experience at, at, at kind of a high level. He got down into the suffering of our world. He got into the hurt, into the pain. He experienced it from our side of the street. He really did. It's just amazing to consider all those particular wonderful aspects of Jesus coming to reveal the Father to us, Jesus coming close to us and not staying away from us. But this whole particular idea of him giving elbow deep in my suffering blows my mind. Why would God, why would God submit himself to wounds? Why would God put himself under the confusion of a world that hates him? Why would God do that? Why would he put himself under that kind of suffering? Well, he's communicating his understanding of us and his love for us. God feels. And and that's one of the things, you know, when we make up caricatures of God. We kind of limit him from particular aspects that he clearly from the scriptures tells us he has. Let me prove my point in how God gets into the mess with us. Uh, Most of you, some of you have probably heard the story of Lazarus, right? The the brother of Martha and Mary called the friends of Jesus. Like if it's going to show up in the text and to find his friend, my guess is this family was really close to Jesus. Jesus loved this family. Well, the story gets back to Jesus who's out on a ministry tour that Lazarus is sick. Jesus knows that. And they're saying, come back, Jesus, because you heal people and you can make Lazarus well again. And yet Jesus, the text makes it really clear in John that Jesus kind of Lags. He just doesn't, he's not in a hurry. And, and I want you to know there's a reason why. Je- Jesus knows what's going on, right? He, he understands it completely. He has a perspective. And there's a reason for Lazarus' death. Now, let me just kind of unpack it for you. In, in John chapter 11, verse 4, this is what said. And when Jesus heard about this illness, he says this illness does not lead to death, even though he does ultimately die. But he says this in the big perspective. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. This God is going to be on display, and I will be, as God, glorified in it. That's big perspective, right? That's what Jesus says. Then he says this in verse 14. Again, being implored to come back. Then Jesus told him plainly, uh, Jesus, Lazarus has died. Now, he knows that he is, his life is over. And he says, and for your sake, I'm glad. Now, just a tip. Don't ever say that at a funeral, all right? For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, Jesus says, so that you may believe. He's speaking to his disciples. There's something about me you have to learn. I'm glad he's not alive so that you can learn, so that you might believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus has a big perspective. He knows what he's doing. I just kind of fabricate in my mind like a scenario, like because he's God, he knows where this is going. Like he's not confused. He's not worried. He doesn't respond to death like you and I would without hope. He, he's in charge, okay? So it kind of almost could make him a little bit emotionless, couldn't you? Based on all that he knows and what he's about to do and God's going to go on display and I'll be glorified. And you're going, okay, he could just be like robotic when he treats this particular circumstance. But that's not at all what he does. Because here's what John tells us about how Jesus, this Lord of glory come in the flesh, responds to suffering he experiences in the story of Lazarus. This is what he says. Again, the crowd now has gathered. He's been dead four days. There is mourners there. Martha and Mary, who he loves, are there. And he says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved, greatly troubled. Scriptures do not exaggerate the feelings of our Lord when he is feeling the loss and the suffering of others. Greatly troubled, greatly troubled, and deeply moved. You know how this lays out. He simply says, where, where is he? And as people are mourning, Jesus weeps. How could, how, why would God, who knows what he's about to do, with the biggest perspective of all, why would he weep? The text goes on to tell us, even after they move towards the grave, he says, Jesus was deeply moved again as they entered the tomb. He's about to raise him from the dead. It's going to be a party in just a few seconds, Okay and yet he's broken. He's moved for them. Why? What's the cause? Because listen, you got to get your head around this. God grieves with our pain. God grieves with our suffering. I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't know if there's broken relationships in your life, or there's some sickness in your life, there's some need in your life, there's some loneliness in your life, there's some burden you're carrying. I don't know what it is, but I know that's universal in the human experience. We all got something. Let me just remind you today that your Lord, he grieves with your pain. He gets right up in it, greatly troubled, deeply distressed. That's how Jesus responds to us. That's how Jesus reacts to our suffering and our loneliness. And here's why. Because he has felt what we feel. That's what the text tells us. Here's here's what the writer of Hebrews says, and I'll just remind you of these verses. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, get this, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Those two words don't seem to fit with God of glory come to this earth. He learned and he suffered. And yet that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Here's what that simply means. Jesus began his human life without drawing on the eternal wisdom and knowledge. He went through a learning process. He's felt our feelings. I told you before, he went through how to talk and how to walk. He probably got skinned knees, probably cut his finger on a saw. He probably did some things, not sinful things, but things he had to learn from, right? That's the reality of his learning. But the suffering part, this is the part that just is amazing. He submitted himself to suffering. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with what? Grief. Or suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows; yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Get this: Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. Text tells us he went forty days without food. I haven't gone forty minutes without food in my whole life. Okay, he knows. Jesus knows. He knew what it was like to be lonely and rejected at levels you can never possibly fathom, to have his disciples walk away in his deepest hour. Jesus knows what it's like to be unappreciated. He comes and rescues people. He delivers people from demons, and they say, hey, can you just leave? Can you, can you leave our community? You're creating stress around here, and he's bringing gifts. Talk about Unappreciated. Jesus knows, he knows more than anybody else what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be beaten and ridiculed. He knows what it's like to be to suffer, to face death. He knows what it's like to stand at the graveside of a friend or a loved one who's died and passed on. We don't hear much of Joseph in any of the narrative stories after his birth. So more than likely he had to bury his dad somewhere. He knows what what have you gone through that he hasn't been there and done that? At bigger levels than you. He knows. He feels, has felt what we feel. You, you've heard me use this illustration before. I, the reason why I use it is because it leaves an imprint. Um, there's a thing called sympathetic Resonance when it comes to instruments that kind of explains how he feels. In in my house, in the front room, I have a, a band room, okay, and on the wall are like 20 guitars, okay? If you went in there and you plugged in a guitar and you turned it up and hit a big E chord, you know, a big rock and roll chord, and just stopped, every guitar in the room would ring at E. Did you know that? If you hit a piano and you strike a chord and you stop, the other strings will resonate. Just think about your Lord. If a key of suffering is struck in your life, he resonates. He feels it. He experiences it. He knows what it's like. Our God got down on his knees and into the mess, and he feels our feelings, our hurts, our pains, our, our fears, and our loss. That's what God knows. That's what Jesus has done. He got close to the mess. Here, here's why God grieves with us, because he faces what we face. I don't know how to explain this other than to tell you what the text makes clear. Again, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now listen to this. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Do you believe that? Now, church, seriously, do you believe that? That he's been tempted in every way that you are? So when you're tempted... Spin the truth a little bit to make yourself look better. Text says, in every way, but without sin. Gentlemen, when you have a tendency to take a second look at a beautiful woman that goes by, tempted in every way, yet without sin. You really believe that? That your Lord got so close to the story, he can see from your side of the street. He faced what you face all those struggles and temptations, that he was tempted to strike out in anger when someone said something stupid or insensitive to him, or that he was, he was tempted to lose faith in the midst of all this pressure and crisis. Now, he didn't, file, he didn't fail. He didn't sin, but he was tempted, right? Isn't that what that means? Tempted in all ways, yet without sin. How often do you think about that when you're struggling? How often do you think, oh, he knows, or here's what we do most of the time. We bury our head in shame. And so, when we struggle, when we fail, when we're tempted, we, the last place we typically go is to the Father because we're a little bit worried that, one, he won't understand, and I'm clearly embarrassed. And, but that's completely the opposite of this whole text. Hebrews says, really clearly, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. Come to the high priest. He's been there. He knows what it's like. Not to fail, but clearly to be tempted in all ways and yet without sin. And I think clearly from the, the narrative, you know that he was tempted in greater ways than you'll ever experience yet without sin. That's, that's our Lord of glory. So think about this. In the difficult times in our lives, we pretend that we can't go to the Lord. We pretend that it's maybe too great or too weird that he won't somehow understand, that we are embarrassed of our struggle. There is nothing more counter to the gospel than that. This is a true statement. He says, come, come to me because I got you. I understand. I know what it's like. I know what the pressure feels like. And he has the solution to the pressure. The victory is in his finished work, right? Right, church? Okay, so he sympathized. He grieves. He grieves because he is, he has felt what we felt. He faced what we faced. Let me give you another thought about the glory of God. And And this is, I'm not trying to kill the wonderful happy vibes here. I just always have to put this in here. The glory of God is devastating without Jesus. It's devastating without trust and faith in Christ, but it's a place of rest to those who hide in him, it it is, now let me explain why I say this, because when you hear, when you hear this wonderful story that Jesus understands, and he faced, and he knows, I mean, who wouldn't want that, right, let me use an illustration to, to, to prove my point, Exodus chapter 33 is in the narrative story of Israel, and they're wandering from the desert, you know, going to the promised land that God promised them. Okay, Moses goes up on the mountain to hear from God for a little while. The people of Israel say, we're bored, he's gone, let's do something new. And so they have Aaron fashion a golden calf and they start their false worship. Everyone tracking so far? Okay. God looks at Moses and say I'm done with those folks. What a stiff-necked group of people. So Moses starts pleading for his people. God, don't, don't get rid of them. Don't get rid of them because what will the nation say about you drove them out here to kill them all? That's not going to be good. Let's just, would you extend grace again? And God does. And so Moses is in this conversation, this interceding with God and God making this covenant promises to to Moses. And Moses says to him, "Well, how how do I know that I'm going to know your favor? How do I know this is all going to happen? Like I'm not leaving here unless you come with me. We're not going anywhere unless you promise to stick to stick by us, okay? And then Moses asks this like really unusual request. He says, "Hey God, can I can I see your glory? I just want to see you." God says to Moses, "Well, you won't survive it, buddy." If I let you see me, you would be no more. You won't survive it. But I got an idea. There, Over there is a cliff and there's a crack in the cliff. There's a cre- cleft in the rock. Go, go bury yourself in the cleft and I'll go by and you can look at my back and you'll survive that. And in that story is not only a true narrative for Moses, but I think um, is a truth in this glory of God for us. I want you to know that the weight of God's glory would be devastating, terrifying without a rock to hide in. Without Jesus, if God shows up, we're done. If there isn't a place to hide called the gospel, then we're all done, right? God is holy. He hates sin. Because God is holy and perfect and right, he must punish sin and the sin in sinners. God's standard is perfection according to Scripture, and the Scripture says all fall short. You tracking so far? That's what it says. You and I need what the angels foretold in the promise of the coming Messiah, we need a savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what we need, right? We need a savior, we need a covering, we need to be hidden in Christ. My sin punished, my sin covered, and a righteousness that doesn't belong to me, given, imputed to me by faith in Christ. I believe that Jesus is my righteousness and I get it. I believe that God punished my sin in Jesus and he he did. And I go free by simple faith in Christ that his glory now becomes something different than terror. It becomes my peace and my comfort. you see? You gotta have some place to hide. And Jesus is that. There's one more uh, truth of God's glory this morning and we're done. I think the glory of God now defines life and living from here on out. Once you understand it, it changes everything. Because apart from, apart from life in Jesus Christ, Our life, my life is just considered to me to be a pointless collection of wanderings. Like you're just stuck on selfish and stupid, just bumping into things. That's what it's like without Jesus. Um, Trying to make myself happy. But knowing Christ means that it turns what I'm inclined to by my flesh, self-worship, into what we just did for 30 minutes called his worship. Something happened, church. Something happened to my heart and to my intentions and to my will and my want-tos. Instead of everything being focused inward, I was made to be reflector of the glory of God. I'm suddenly now a worshiper. I'm singing his praises as opposed to dealing myopically with my life. It takes my pointless existence and gives it somehow a divine meaning and purpose. It takes the mundane tasks of everyday life and raises them to now glorifying proportions. Like just yesterday, this is going to sound insane, two weeks ago I hung Christmas lights trying to be a good neighbor in my neighborhood, okay? I'm at the end of a cul-de-sac, nobody cares, but I'm doing it, all right? And then I'm planning on painting the house, so I took them all down yesterday. There was nothing that felt more mundane than up and down and up, just for nothing. Nobody cares, nobody sees. But here's the reality. If that story works at all, it works this way. Everything you do in your life gets changed in what it means. Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, even if we're talking about eating and drinking, do it all to what? The glory of God. How can eating and drinking glorify God? How is that possible? Can I show you a couple of thoughts here? How do you bring glory to an all-sufficient, perfect, all-wise, infinitely beautiful, all-powerful God? How can you enhance that whatsoever? How do you do that? Well, watch this. Here's just a couple of simple analogies. How would you, by instance, glorify a beautiful meal? Like, let's say you're getting ready for Christmas dinner. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be ham, lots of potatoes. It's going to work out perfectly. How would I bring glory to an awesome meal? Would I put on an apron, run in the kitchen, go, let me enhance this with my techniques and my spices? No, you'd do what everyone does. You'd just eat a lot and enjoy it, right? You'd lay on the couch and sleep for hours after it. That's what you do after a beautiful meal. You would glorify it by enjoying it. You'd take pleasure from it and your pleasure equals your treasure. How would you bring glory to a beautiful painting, right? I'm not a painter, I don't have that creativity, but how would, you, how would you bring glory to a painting? Would you grab a paintbrush and some paints and try to enhance it? Hey, let me help you, Pablo. You're missing a couple of things here. No, you, you would simply enjoy it. You'd point at the friends and say, hey, come and look at this beautiful piece of work over here. Um, I want to buy that. I want to put it in my house so I can see it all the time. How would you bring, like... Um, How would you bring glory to a structure like this building? Or like a bridge if you were to cross a bridge? Sounds mundane, right? Well, you would put your family in a car and drive over it. You would communicate your trust in its ability to do you good. I'm not afraid of it. You would glorify it that way. How would you bring glory to someone who gave you money? If I just walked up to you today and said, Here's 500 bucks, how would you bring glory to that moment? Would you quickly start collecting money from other people so you could pay me back? Would you get a job and try to make things even? No, you would simply say, man, I'm so thankful for, thank you very much. I'm grateful for what you've done. How how would you bring glory to to somebody for great wisdom and knowledge? Would you wait around for, the hope that they'd ever have a question so that you could equal their knowledge and balance the scales in wisdom. No, 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 simply this is how you would do it. If someone was wiser than you, you would listen to them. You would do what they suggested. You would follow their ways, right? I hope you're getting the analogy of all this. How do you bring glory to God in the mundane? How do you bring glory, go- glory to God in everything in your life? Enjoy him, trust him, obey him. It's not brain surgery. It's just not. You're eating, you're drinking, your work, your neighborhood, you're going to school, your math quiz, your sports, your job, whatever it is, enjoy, trust, obey. And God's going, that's that's how I made you, the glory of God. You can bring him glory in that, trusting and obeying him and enjoying him forever. Listen, what we've just talked about today crosses every generation line, every particular racial line, educational line, health line, whatever, all can and do glorify God when we enjoy him, enjoy him for what he gives and trusting him for what he he promises for us and obeying him and what he says. This, This wonderful miracle of Christmas is the glory of God didn't stay far away from me. The glory of God got into a body and came to this world to communicate love and understanding and a rescue that wasn't possible without him. The miracle of Christmas is God came close. If you do anything this Christmas, just say thank you. Glorify him by enjoying it like crazy. He is a good God, amen? Amen, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus. The reminder again. For why he came, the miracle of you coming to this world and taking on flesh and a rescue mission for me and my sin and for your church. God, I pray this morning that we'd leave here, just really encouraged this, uh, this season about that truth, that reality. You have come for our joy, you have come for our peace, and you've come to give us yourself. All we can do is say thank you. We glorify you in your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.